but it's first is always the goal is always success. Let them win at the workout, mm. set it up so they can win. And yeah, we want that to be sort of on the edge where they could push the intensity and push themselves. That was DJ Murakami, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online sports technology store that curates the best of in various elements of training, such as timing systems with the free lap timing system, training tools with things such as blood flow restriction training and the K-Box, athlete monitoring devices such as velocity-based training, force plates and the VO2 Master, and much more. I choose sponsors for this show that I use their products personally, and I have been loving using blood flow restriction training this past year. The free lap timing system has been an absolute staple for me. I've really enjoyed using bar speed tracking and the K-Box. Those and other products in their store have been a really valuable part of not just my coaching journey, but also my journey as an athlete. They have as well an amazing blog on sports performance and are a top-notch company with great customer service. Be sure to check them out and you can do that at simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Thanks for being here. Today, our guest is strength and performance coach DJ Murakami. DJ has over 15 years of experience in the realm of coaching, and he himself has a wide history, a very broad spectrum of movement practice in strength and movement culture. DJ has created training courses such as Chi Torque, the Predator Protocol, and others, and he educates coaches and fitness enthusiasts alike through his Human Strong training organization. DJ is a coach who has studied a massive number of systems and methods and as well, he's trained himself in so many movement and strength expressions. For example, you may have seen him on his Instagram lifting massively heavy boulders and logs. And through that journey, DJ will be sharing with us today his background and then his evolution as a coach and how he really has gotten to the core of human level training, the core of breaking through cognitive barriers, things that we put in the way of athletes like the nocebo effect or telling them ways they can't move. And he'll be sharing with us how to make training a story, a quest for each individual to really bring out their human potential. DJ will also be sharing with us his knowledge of internal and external muscle torques, a system created by Julian Pinot, and how he uses and looks to that system to determine exercise selection, as well as it being a way to connect athletes with the movements they're doing. So he'll be talking about that, and we'll also be talking about how the internal and external torques fit with principles of compression and expansion. We'll also be talking about task-oriented training, so think about lifting a stone with only one, maybe two solutions or ways you could possibly lift it versus a barbell where you could lift it a great number of ways. So task-oriented training versus training with more movement options, this and much more. It was a lot of fun to talk to DJ. He's a wise coach who walks his talk on a high level in addition to his coaching insights. Let's get to episode 339 with coach DJ Mirakami. DJ, great to have you here, man. Could you get started? I'm curious on some of the major systems you've went through to get to where you are now in training. Like, I think we've all been through a lot of different schools of thought and ideas and just curious what some of yours have major players for you have been to get to where you are now. Let's see. I went through kind of a bodybuilding high school phase 
And I guess the system was whatever the big guy in the gym, the juice up guy was telling me to do. <laughs> um, I went through like the, the 2000s perform better uh, functional training things. So like athletic, speed, agility, stuff like that. Power building, T Nation phase. These aren't major systems. This is just bro. I think I think the point. T Nation, like a 2000 to 2010, is a system of sorts, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it was probably some of the best gains I've ever made in my life. Olympic lifting, I got into that for a couple of years. CrossFit, movement culture. So, Edo phase one, <laughs> if anyone has survived that. FRC, so like the mobility phase. I went to a PRI course and I didn't understand anything they said, even though they gave me like the, the crayons to color in the muscles and everything. You know, WEC method, spent time with them, strong fit, mentored with them for a few years. Every, you know, I even tried GOTA for three months just because I had a friend who was coaching it. Yeah, I've, I've dabbled in a few things. Yeah. So, you know, along that way, what would you say like the biggest systems have been? Like the biggest, the biggest pieces, I mean, I guess it's a hard question to ask, right? Because sometimes it's hard to know until you have the person in front of you and you're like, oh, well, this fits here and this piece fits here. And I will say quick aside too, as I went to three PRI seminars and was confused, I felt like I was in back in like pre-calculus or computer programming class where I forgot what was happening after the first line. <laughs> yeah, I, a lot of confusion for me as well there. So I, that, I wish they gave me crayons. That would have been great. <laughs> Anyways, I'm just curious. Like, so <laughs> that would have been awesome. Actually, it's like, hey, for all you who are having problems following this, here's some, here's some crayons. <laughs> Can I just get a coloring book instead of this manual? Yeah. Can I get it <laughs> represented in illustrations? Yeah. I, anyways, I, I mean, what you know, if you were to say your system now after going through all these things. Like, what are some of the main pieces that you keep with you if you if you feel like there are? Yeah, I'm sure everything is kind of informed where I'm at now, bits and pieces. But I would say as far as like the impact on my body, it was really education-wise. <laughs> okay, I'll tell you this. The best seminar I ever took as far as like gains after that leveled me up was a, a John North seminar. If you're aware of him, he's an Olympic weightlifter. We learned nothing. He didn't teach anything. It was pretty much just pumping us up all day. It was a whole course in mindset, not being afraid. There's the energy of the group. I hit like a bunch of crazy PRs that day and kept hitting PRs after that seminar. It was like such a huge jump in my training. Lately, I'd say and I have the mindset where if I go into a course or seminar and I take one little gym that like tweaks my perspective or trajectory, I think it's worth it. Like WEC did that for me, the WEC method. You know, one pattern of what they do kind of resonated with me. And I like it fit with a different model of how I view training. And I was like, wow, this is going to add another dimension. Even if I don't believe in the gate explanation or run or why you're supposed to do it or how you're supposed to do it just being exposed to that way of thinking opened up new thinking in myself so that's like valuable in itself so i, I rarely go somewhere trying to say okay give me the system or the model that i can use to navigate the world it's more like let me expose myself to new ideas and see if they can add value to my own kind of story or how i view things 
strong fit was a huge one for me. That's probably the one I recommend the most to people just because it's a, it's a different way of thinking about the body. It's a different model and it's practical. Like I know you've looked into it a bit and I've kind of looked at the expansion compression model. So I think they're all, all models are good. Which is the one that's most practical and that produces the most results? Because I've seen people go into some functional training system and kind of decondition and detrain themselves, mm-hmm. but they're more sure and more confident of how they move now. They move more correctly, but I'm like, okay, but are you better? <laughs> are you bigger, stronger, faster? So yeah, that, it's something you have to be wary of when entering these new cultures and narratives, ideologies. But uh, yeah, uh, take what's useful and yeah, sorry, I don't know if I answered that, but no, definitely, it definitely gives me some good things to like, I definitely get that. And I think for me, I think about back before I got down like the rabbit holes, before you go into the minutia, like you could say, go to the PRI seminars and not that those are bad. I think those have a lot of really good offerings, especially maybe if you work more in the clinical space than maybe more the general space. I mean, I do think there's some good things regardless for me. Like I remember, like you mentioned David Weck, and before I even knew anything about compression and expansion and that rabbit hole, which I would say that's probably the way I I generally look at the world now through that piece, because to me, it's just a little simpler than PRI. It's just (laughs) the fluid goes from spaces of compression to expansion, thinking of that. But I remember having an athlete do bounding. And then I said, hey, and the bounding just looked really like linear, like a robot. And then I'm like, all right, I remember David said, you could do the Royal Coil. And then they'll be more like head over the foot. And so we do the Royal Coil and their bounding has more rib cage motion. There's more, there's just more fluidity. They're using more of that like fluid coil, like if you will, action. And it's interesting to think, well, what if I would have went, what if I would have got into the compression and expansion model first? And instead of just saying, hey, do this Royal Coil, I would have said, hey, all right, we're going to get you, I don't know, on your back doing like, we're going to start in the sagittal plane and we're going to get you you know, doing these 90-90s, we're going to do this and get you reciprocal at the hips. And maybe we spend 20 minutes doing these lower level drills. And then maybe we get the same result. But now the athlete's like, I don't remember all those things. And, <laughs> you know, it's it's it seems like it's almost like the thing I'm always moving towards is what is the simplest possible thing to elicit the feeling in the athlete of what we're trying to get at? And where I can also talk as little as possible, because I like to talk far too much when I'm coaching. And so, for me, I really respect that. And I've had a lot of people through this podcast who are in the compression expansion space actually really say how much they enjoy some of those uh, WEC coiling based movements because of the big, just that, like it, it modulates that compression expansion in a positive and really simple way for a lot of people. Yeah. I love what you just said. That's what it's all about. Can you alter someone's movement output to bias more of what you're trying to get out of it without making it a cognitive task creating these barriers where they have to think about it, it being too low stimulus. So yeah, I think just easy. And I think that's how we learn is like stories and like the Royal coil and you do this thing. (laughs) (laughs) There's almost like a, almost like a ritualistic thing about it, which I think people operate better on as far as the user interface than actually being educated on some theoretical model i agree yeah tony holler is a track coach who was just on the show and he'll do a plyometric day for his sprinters and they'll do depth drops but he calls them cat jumps you know it's just like putting a story behind everything and almost like 
you know, almost in doing that, not intentionally, not over coaching. Like here's the, it's almost like you start with the myth first, like the rhythm first, the, the human level things first. And then, you know, whereas I think we just kind of flip flop it so often, you know, it's like, that's last if we even get to it at all, you know? Mm -hmm. I think people would be surprised even if they change their emotion and mindset before going into a movement, how much it will change the experience and the output. Just, you know, just that alone. And maybe we shy away from that as trainers because we maybe take less responsibility and part of us wants to know like, okay, this is why we're doing it. You know, I guide them a little more clearly, but yeah, it's interesting. You could change some variables where it's like, oh, that's really, I could step back and that's all you need. Don't, you know, don't overcoach be rule number one. Yeah, I was going to ask you with the link to coaching, and I I meant to kind of dig into this a little bit more with your background, and you've done a ton of different strength sports. I was curious, have you growing up, like what sports you played? And then also, with all the stuff you've done, how you feel that's helped you coach? Because you know, you've done it, like you feel it. And then through that, I think that also adds an interesting dynamic to things. So, I was just curious, I guess, what what sports you did before you got into the strength sports. And then I'm also curious how you're just all your movement practices carry into how you actually go coaching about coaching on a day-to-day basis? Well, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a generation where we played outside every day. Played all the sports, but I was really, I kind of went in all in on a football, American football. And that, I mean, that's honestly probably 90% of the base of my structure physically. Yeah, but as far as like, Coaching other people, I made the mistake of overcoaching early on and really just being neurotic about coaching, just nociboing people, making people overthink, making things overcomplicated, and really having zero social skills, emotional intelligence, communication skills not building relationships at all, just being like in the hyper intellectual realm, which was not as effective. So, you know, I learned the hard way of failing and failing and then um, figuring out that working with another human being is a lot different than, you know, fixing a, a car in the shop. So, yeah, how I coach now is like you said, Meet people where they're at, make them feel safe, make them feel comfortable, listen, and uh, say the least amount, create the least amount of cognitive barriers as possible and just get them going in the right direction. Yeah. When you work with somebody who you feel like, like where you're tempted to become, to break things down, like into more component parts, uh, maybe they have an injury issue they've been dealing with that they're trying to work through they have some sort of movement discrepancy something like that like how do you look at starting could you give me an example of how you look at starting with something more simple so something that is like like start here and then working into more of the minutiae or just like how you would take a a client or somebody through something like that yeah so i mean if we're going through movement and i'm assessing like as we go through the record i don't really have an assessment process intake process it's just like let's move and we'll build it as we go so if i see someone either not showing competency at the movement somebody having a negative experience with the movement 
I'll just kind of add constraints, increase stability, you know, make it less of a skill heavy movement and, you know, keep going until it's the right fit for them until they have a positive experience. And then, you know, on the accessories back burner, we're going to add in things to kind of increase their capacity to move forward. But it's first is always, the goal is always success. Let them win at the workout, Mm. set it up so they can win. And yeah, we want that to be sort of on the edge where they could push the intensity and push themselves, but we want them to feel safe and succeed. So that's kind of how I set up a training day for someone. That's awesome. Training partner I had the last couple of years, he was, uh, he worked at Westside Barbell for a little bit. I think he, his intro there was he had to be like the, the deadlift dolly guy. <laughs> he was taking plates on and off the bar. And he said one of the things that Louis would always say is always find a way to win the workout. Always find a way. And to me, it's almost like every workout is like a game, a quest where you, it's not like, oh, I didn't hit my weight today. You know, poor me, I have to drop down. But like always having something that's on the edge of your ability to win at. And, you know, as you were saying that, I was thinking about, there was a, I have one of those water bag things. Like I don't do a lot of the trendy like exercises with it. I just kind of play around with it. But the guy who it's one of the knockoffs. So I feel bad for <laughs> Paul Venner's like the original water bag guy. And this is one of the knockoffs. But the guy who made this had said he went through like all the he had like a major shoulder issue and went through like all the rehab stuff, probably all the TheraBand stuff, all the systems and nothing worked. And they just started like using this water bag and just doing basic stuff. I mean, he showed his workout program. It's basically like presses or just different pushes i think there may have been a target or a task involved like and i'll even do that sometimes i'll warm athletes up and i'll have them hold the water bag and i'll throw a ball at them and they have to block it with the bag like it's a goalkeeper effect or something like that and apparently that water bag just that took care of this guy's problems like that like and i'm not saying it's like gonna be like that for everybody but it was like here's something you can win you know (laughs) you can do this and you can win and it's just pure like task and you're in that state where it's just you in the water and it's not like hey, do it this way, do this, you know, and, and feel this part of your joint. It just seems like, and for someone maybe too, who's more task oriented, who perceives life, I mean, we all perceive it as a game, but I'm sure there's a lot of reasons, but that story made me think of that with the water bag and yeah, I've been using it a little bit more myself. So it's like, yeah, I, I think that's something is so easy to overlook too, because we always, it's so common for, I'll see this too, where like a bunch of coaches go to like you know, they go to like the FRC seminar and they come back and everyone's doing FRC or they go to PRI and everyone's doing, you know, 90-90 wall drills. And it's like we want to piece people into that series of drills we just learned at the seminar or something like that. You know, I think that's really common. But like the art of finding something that the athlete, the client can win at is is so key. I think it's, yeah, that feeling of perception, that feeling of I'm getting better throughout the workout here. I'm winning. Yeah, I, I've seen similar things giving someone a task of simply go from A to B and they figure out a way to do it. And then when you tell them, when you use the language of an exercise, which is the same task, they completely change how they do it. They'll experience pain because, you know, with that name of the exercise is baggage of their history of doing it, of how they were told they're supposed to do it, how they're not supposed to do it. And so all of that just creates sometimes pain. It's, it's a negative experience in their body. But if you just say, just do the task, they pick things up every day. They know how to do it. But yeah, I think that's, the, that's our industry's fault of nociboing people to a big extent and having people search for 
perfection and like this ideal efficiency. You see it nowadays. It's like if you want to be successful on Instagram, just tear apart and bash what people are doing uh, and just create like a more optimal, more efficient way that it must be done. And, and this is going to go on endlessly, you know? Yeah, it's very, it's far easier to bash something than to, than I think to just offer the simple solution just like of encouragement and like finding a good environment and letting the athlete find their own solution to the problem. That probably is going to look pretty good, you know, given it enough time and the right environment. And, you know, I was thinking about your John North that example you gave as well. And I, I would imagine too, in that environment, like people's techniques probably were very likely getting better too. It's like you get charged up and something, probably not just the power changes, but I imagine in the right environment, the technical things you might be looking for might come along over time in that environment without you necessarily having to nitpick it along the way either. I'm curious your, your take on that, like technique, like coaching people in a strength technique anything like that. I mean, and stone lifting is so interesting too. I, I you know, cause that, how do you coach, you know, you have all sorts of different stones and things like that. So maybe we could start going that direction, but I'm, I'm curious what your take on or take is on coaching technique and things as clients move forward, as individuals move forward. Yeah. It's probably similar to yours. I'll influence the technique with adding in some constraints. And an example would be if I want someone to create more say internal torque while pressing, I'll just change the implement like a sandbag. So you're forced to compress and adapt to it and keep that tension while going through the movement. So, you know, without them having to think about it, you could always just, you know, whether that's a, some wedges or a different implement or, you know, could be the equipment, could be some you know, RNT sort of stuff, some feedback, some reference, whatever it is, you just bias kind of the movement towards, you know, what you want them to get out of it. And I think the important thing is once they feel that you can kind of remove things and have them replicate that experience since it's felt and they kind of know what they're supposed to be squeezing. Mind muscle connection gets bashed a lot, but I am a big believer in uh, how important that is just from an experiential level and, and a level of like confidence and to be able to replicate how something feels going into it. It's just we're predictive machines. So the more that we can predict what something is going to feel like and how we're going to approach it, uh, I think the better off we're going to execute the task. Yeah. I imagine too, like, as you said, you kind of went through this stage and I, I did this too, where I, I over-intellectualized, I know SIBO people <laughs> and, and I, it's been this slow, long journey of, of crawling out of that. And I think a big part of that, I mean, I've, I've kind of known this all the time, but it just becomes more and more true to me each year is that, you know, the human body, like it's, as Jay Schrader puts it, is a miracle. Like, and we think of the problem solving ability of the human body. I still think that we don't, we don't take it for what it's worth so often. So I was going to ask you too, so with like the stone lifting type thing, or maybe we'll go there. So with like lifting stones, doing things like that, what's your take on using that on the level of, uh, maybe this will be a little bit different direction. I, I do kind of want to still maybe keep in the realm of technique, but I, I've heard you say training is better when there's like both meaning and an output. I think so often we might go in the gym or if we're doing sprints, it's like, all right, we're just going to time these 40s and okay, we did three of them and you ran 
you know, XYZ. You ran four six, four seven, four seven. But if we can put more meaning behind it, at least I found this for me to be true, is it I'll be faster. And so I'm curious how you the the impact or talk a little bit about lifting stones or doing things that are just more meaningful on just that total practice as well as like the, the total outputs because so often people are like well did it make you stronger could you be as strong as you could doing these things or not i'm curious about that as part of your practice yeah i think meaning is important just it could even be making something a, a task oriented movement you know like so instead of timing a, a sprint hey we're gonna race on here people are always gonna perform better like when they're racing someone or when you turn it into a game so there's that level but yeah, as far as like picking up a stone, it's really the game and the strength riddle of can I get it up here and not like five by five in your program where you're doing a certain percentage more. And there's no metric of a stone, you know, it's it's not about the number, it's about the task really is all it is. And I do think, I mean, I've learned the, the good thing about things like that, especially things in nature that are a little more chaotic is you get a, they're information rich you're going to approach it a slightly different way every time. And you're going to learn more about yourself while doing it because you're going to be put in different positions. You know, that might be, you have to grab it in an awkward way. It's asymmetrical. So it's exposing things, you know, the footing might be different. The, the grip might be different. So you're getting more information. You're getting some novelty and that just informs more about yourself, especially when you go into a very ordered environment like the gym, right? And then another thing I like about stones and sandbags versus a barbell, a barbell is very, you have a lot of leeway on how you approach lifting a barbell. It could be done in a multitude of ways. You can lift it up like a power lifter, like an Olympic lifter, like a bodybuilder, sumo, narrow grip, there's a lot of freedom in that movement. But things like a sandbag or stone, you're only really, you're constrained on how you can get it up. It really informs you on this is how you hinge, this is how you lap, this is how you lift. So I actually like things like that, that um, are a little more self-governing as far as how uh, you can do it compared to barbell. And that seems the opposite. You would think like a stone is <laughs> a lot more freedom and chaos in it. And it is in a sense as far as variables, but a barbell, I mean, if I tell someone to pick up a barbell, I don't know what I'm going to get. I don't know what it's going to look like depending on the individual, depending on the style and technique. There's it, That's the good thing about it is you could use it in so many ways. The bad thing about it is you don't know what someone expects of you when you give them uh, the task with that implement. I, I love what you said there with the stones. I'd never thought about that. I, I believe you've, I'm sure you've been like bouldering and rock climbing. I'm, you probably mentioned that in the intro. One of the things I loved about bouldering after doing track for so long and just, it was basically my history was track for basketball growing up, very athletic when playing basketball. Part of it was the community, the environment, not thinking about, <laughs> not thinking about the technique, like, even too, like when you go to dunk the first time, you might only have one option. You know, it's just, I have to jump this way just to get that ball in the rim. Just like it's, it's a singular constraint, but even rock climbing reignited all that for me because I mean, it's not like this for the low level problems, like a V1 or V2, you can climb it a bunch of different ways, but you start to get up there like five, six on the bouldering or whatever. 
there's probably only one way you're going to get that. But it's like you unlock that problem. Like you found the one way and that's why they call them problems, you know, probably like, and to me, that's such more and a more immersive way. I mean, people get addicted to rock climbing. I think, I mean, people get it, are iron addicts too, but it's not the same way. Like I don't, I don't think there's people like living out of their vans outside the powerlifting <laughs> gym, the way there are people living in their vans outside of Yosemite, you know, and it's, there's just something about that that's so cool. And you were saying like with the sandbag or like with the rock, like, I don't know, it's so cool that there's probably not as many ways to do it and you're figuring it out versus, well, I could lift it this way or I could lift it that way or maybe I just got bored of lifting it this way. So, it's a new forward block, so let's lift it this way, you know. So, I, I just think that's so cool. And I mean, I think that psychological element's really powerful as well. Yeah, there's a reason like you want to see someone beta the the route before you go climb it, right? Because you need to see how did they figure out how to do it and then you go about it. Like, I, I think that's right on. The more challenging it gets, the less freedom you have in ways to approach it. I think it was... Uh, and, and there's good things about both sides of that scale of freedom and, I guess, challenge. I think it was Carl Paoli once said that increased complexity increases inclusivity. So, what he meant was like, you give someone the task of a pull-up, get above the bar, and you let them kip, it's going to allow a lot of people to do that task. But if you say strict pull-up, you're limiting the people who can do that task. So, it's really an argument for, you know, things like, hey, just give a, uh, allow the complexity to be there so people can just be part of the game and approach it how they want. And then as you specialize and as the level gets higher and higher, you know, it's going to be constrained. Yeah, when you're designing programs to your clients, I mean, I'm assuming, do you prefer more things that, would you prefer things that there's like more, like a sandbag? Like, I mean, maybe it's just, this is a very, this is a really polarized way of looking at like barbells versus sandbags. <laughs> but like, maybe just tell me a little bit about how you'd approach using sandbags or some of those tools where there's more of a solution with clients. Yeah, it's hard to, I mean, the, the downside of sandbags is they're not as available, but, but also you can't scale the weight and adjust the weight and progress mm -hmm. it like you can on a barbell. I mean, that's the great thing about gym weights and barbells and dumbbells. But yeah, I like them as tools that serve a certain purpose. So if people have it available, I'll program that in or it will be an option if the intention of an exercise is, let's say, you know, we're hammering internal torque here, it's going to be a great tool. Dumbbells are great too. I mean, you could do plate presses, there's other modifications, but picking up a weight inside your hands, like with that false grip compression, is something very natural. Probably the only way we picked up things mm -hmm. <laughs> if you go back far enough, right? Picking up something with handles where the weight is outside of your body laterally is almost, I don't know if that's happened before a barbell. So, yeah, there's good things I like about the sandbag, but mainly because it's just going to constrain the way you can pick it up. And then if we can carry that over to a barbell, I think it's a good way of just learning different strategies to go through movement patterns. Quickly, I wanted to let you know about the chance to try out Performance Herbalism for only a few dollars shipping costs and get one of Lost Empire Herbs' flagship products, Pine Pollen, for free. 
Switching to an herbal emphasis in my supplementation has been a life-changing switch for me. Just as nature is by design balanced and sustainable, I believe that the more natural our diet and our supplementation is, the better. I love and use several Lost Empire Herbs products that boost not only my energy, but also my strength. These include Chiliagit Resin and the Phoenix Formula. You can check those out by heading to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly and grab 15% off. If you're on the fence about the power of herbalism, I have a great offer for you, which is that you can get free pine pollen. Pine pollen is an herbal powerhouse that is a hormonal and energy booster packed with nutrition. It's actually part of the Phoenix formula. And you can get that for free uh, along with the normal shipping fee at justflypinepollen.com. All right, let's get back to the show. So you've mentioned the internal and external torque a couple times, DJ. That's something I really wanted to get into on this podcast. And man, I'll tell you that Jillian Pinot and, and all that, like that sent me on the rabbit trail of all rabbit trails that I haven't been on in a while. And I really enjoyed learning about that. Because even looking at like the little muscle map, like here's the external torque muscles, here's internal, like I'm like, yeah, I've gone through compression and expansion. I know you have as well. But yeah, I'm curious like the links. But before we get into some of those ideas more, because I have a few questions with that I want to ask you. But explain you know, internal and external torques. Like, what are each of those? And what is, you already mentioned a lift that would be more internal, but maybe a couple examples of here's some internal torque lifts, here's some external torque lifts, here's how this relates to gait. Just curious more about that before we get too much further. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, you might be better uh, telling me how it connects to like the expansion compression model and, and gait cycles, but the torque chains theory is something. Um, Julian Pinau came up with. And it's just really practical. It kind of clicks for me as something, okay, this is going to help organize programming, put movements into little categories, just a good tool for that easy model. But uh, internal torque, you can think of as, uh, and this is really the system, the body working as a unit systemically to have this intent of manipulating an external object in the world, right? So if you're creating internal torque, the chain is contributing in this medial direction of force toward the midline, toward the middle. So you can think of like compression. External torque would be the opposite, going away from the midline outside. So very simple model. But then if you just practice those two actions, you'll notice that there's these concentric muscles that are really primary to going in one direction. And then that's kind of that map of the internal torque chain. And the opposite chain of muscles are there on the external. So, you know, it lines up with, because uh, we, we all know that, you know, there is no muscle in isolation, right? Nothing works in isolation. If you have this kind of squeeze or flex and you keep ramping it up, you're going to see this chain of muscles, even, you know, how your feet turn into the ground, the shape of your body will start being biased a certain way. So, you know, there's there's this kind of chain with both directions. So, that's internal external torque and that's kind of what made me link to David Weck's stuff was I started seeing what he was doing and then I opened up the new dimension of, okay, what if we split this torque and it creates a spiral, which goes into a lot of what you see with these gate practices and some of this transverse frontal plane stuff happening. So that just kind of expanded the language to be able to describe all these things I was seeing in sport and in other people's movement systems so that I could uh, have a good idea of it. But yeah, I, I mean, 
I would really be interested in the similarities you see. I guess it, expansion would be more of the external torque and compression would be more internal torque. Gotcha. Okay, yeah, because that, that's where I was curious is it, the internal torque. So, I think about, like you said, picking up a rock where things are going from the outside of the body, like and squeezing, everything squeezing in. And then external would be like I'm, I guess you could say doing like a, I don't want to know, if, like a wide stance. Like a jump. Term. Well, yeah, like, so a jump would be external. So, if it's, like, I was thinking like a squat, like if I have like my arms outside of me and maybe my, I'm pushing my knees out or something, if you were going to push your knees out, like, would that be more external? Like if someone's like shoving their knees out in a squat or something like that, or like the, I think I've seen like Kelly Starrett, like the feet are like planted and you're like shoving the knees out. Would that be like an external torque type thing? Or is that kind of not on the chart there? So that's, you know, this is kind of the thing where I prefer the simplicity of internal and external torque because they don't go off of position. So, you know, I guess in the expansion compression model, you'd be like, okay, when you see internal torque or compression, you'd say, you know, adduction, internal rotation, IR, dorsiflexion, like you would name these joint actions, you know, it's exhalation based. But with the torque model, it doesn't go off of position or even rotation, right? If you've seen that torque stick, that like bendy bar spring thing I like to use. So for people who haven't seen it, it's like this old school spring bar that can go up to like 220 pounds of force. And you have to like curl it, like bend it together. So that's a great, like that is the expression of internal torque, right? You're just trying to break this bar in half. But you could do it supinated. You can do it pronated. You can do it while doing two different rotations at the hand and you're still <laughs> your pecs are still lighting up during it right one the elbows could be going up one the elbows could be closing down like the joint action doesn't define the torque the musculature the tension in the musculature is really what's defining the torque which is really useful on an experiential level it's going back to this mind muscle connection and an experiential feeling because if you snapshot someone it would be harder to tell what their intent is behind the movement or what they're feeling. So you could do a squat that's internal torque, that's wide, that's more, you know, spreading the ground apart. You could do it both ways. So yeah, I would say, well, what's the intent behind it? So Olympic lifting is going to be, every lift is going to be a mixture of internal and external torque, right? So I would say something like a yoke, if you've seen a, a yoke carry where they have this large bar frame kind of squat rack and you lift it up, that's a constraint that's always going to produce external torque. You're going to really never see people set that up and able to do it below parallel, right? How power lifters do sumo deadlifts, it's almost always biasing external torque. When you try to teach it to gen pop, they usually go internal torque when they do it in the hip shoot up. So you could have you could do things multiple ways. But I think the usefulness is that you can add the constraints and really clarify the torque that you want someone to create and then, you know, set up, modify the exercise, meet them where they're at with their capacity and range of motion and just get more clear on what we're stimulating and programming. Yeah. When you, when you say it that way, and I think about there's like that little drawing of like the little lines of muscle <laughs> I was thinking about, like you said external torques more expansion 
And I was thinking like, I guess you could say like the foot that hits the ground in sprinting, like that foot that's on the ground is probably a little bit more vastus lateralis, like the outside kind of line that's interacting with at least initially a little bit more the outside edge of the foot before it gets to the inside. I've seen people too, like there was a guy, I was kind of like assessing him a little bit. He's this extremely strong sprinter who runs, his feet are really like supinated and he runs like with his legs almost like straight. You could just tell that external torque line is like so developed, but versus somebody who maybe has a lot more experience, like getting really good. Like if I got really good at Olympic weightlifting, then I would probably be a more it would start to change my running gait because I'm now more internal torque oriented. Or I guess you could say too, well, well, you just got better at compression. Well, it's like, I don't know what, what exactly was it? It's probably a mix of all of it. But I, I do think, yeah, like the idea of like, I've heard like internal rotations, like getting good at putting force down into the ground and external torque is you're kind of bouncing or resisting the ground, like you're bouncing off of it. So that makes sense with the yoke to me because you're basically, you have this thing in your back and you're basically just trying to resist the ground versus a squat. You have, you are resisting, but you also have to go down and create a level of compression to get out of it. Yeah. I, I mean, I can see how those two fit together. It just, <laughs> it probably take me, I'll, I'll make sure I have the show notes too. I'll put like the little picture or something like that. But I, I'm curious, like, what do you think the differences are? I mean, I guess it, to me, expansion and as the show, it's, you know, it's abduction, external rotation. I mean, are there any differences outside of, I guess, it, one is made more based off pressure and the other is more based off chains of muscle? I guess that's the big one, huh? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not an expert and I, I think there's a lot. I've learned a lot as far as how to bias things in torque from the expansion compression model because they, they influence each other. Positions can influence tension. Tension will influence position. So it's really valuable. But um, yeah, I would say... Um, what was the question again? Sorry. Oh, no, that's okay. I was just thinking like if the relationship between the internal torques and compression, is it one is just muscles and the other is based off pressure? You uh, know what I'm saying? It, yeah, pressure versus muscle tension, I guess, would be the two. Is that the, <laughs> the main difference, you know, between the two? Yeah, I, I guess so. Pressure, how would you, is that something felt, do you think, in the expansion compression? Is that something you could kind of, intuitively feel where it's changing yeah that's what i was just thinking is what's more meaningful to the client right like if i'm working with somebody how do i create the link to meaning and i don't i mean i guess to me i will say when i'm sprinting i I had this kind of breakthrough uh, several months ago it was in taking alex effort's mentorship as people talk about running tall and whatnot and there's in some ways that's true, but in some ways it's not because if you try to run too tall, it messes with how you interact with the ground. With the ground, but then I was like running, and I'm like, okay, if I get more air in my chest, like really inhale, like I am now interfacing with the ground differently on account of there's more pressure in my chest, in my mm. body. And like, but I'm an elastic athlete, like I'm like a bouncing ball type person. <laughs> I like lifting, but I'm not a, as good at lifting as I am doing bouncy things. <laughs> I guess you could say. Uh, not, but at the same time, I also, I like doing like Jay Schrader's long ISO holds and I like forming a muscular connection. So yeah, it seems almost like maybe there's could be different activities that could be, you know, but I mean, I will say, I don't feel like the compression expansion model was created with that interface in mind necessarily. It's more a way of seeing the world mm-hmm. more so than a way of, Hey, how am I going to tell the individual I'm working with? I'm not, and I will say even, even 
I, I think, you know, taking a big breath and feeling the difference is within the realm of just about every athlete, but it can also get really complicated really quickly. <laughs> so it's, it, it strikes yeah, me that yeah. where you feel that, and I know the cheat torque course, like it's all about feeling like tensions. Maybe you could explain more about that. Cause I imagine that's something that could be pretty, I guess you could say chi could be more esoteric maybe, but tension, everyone can get on board with that pretty quickly. So I'm just curious, yeah, how do you communicate that yeah. to athletes? Yeah, I, I had a conversation with someone who taught the uh, compression expansion model, like a te well-known teacher seminars. And I was like, you know, I loved it because it was lining up and I was learning more about, you know, informing my model. But it was a lot of like, well, you know, it depends if it's yielding concentric, mm -hmm. is it eccentric, uh, you know. And then I was like, well, can you just go off the tension? And I was kind of explaining this model. He said, yeah, but that's useful, but it's not measurable. So I guess that is kind of a good explanation of, you know, that's kind of where you'd want it to get complicated because you want to be very precise and mechanical about describing what's happening. But from the first person, you know, user experience, that's kind of why we created the Chi Torque. Uh, and Chi, you know, we just mean like <laughs> not in the esoteric sense, but like the tension. I think mm -hmm. like when I'm putting energy, mind, muscle connection to voluntarily flex something with intent, you can think of you're, you're moving that energy throughout your body. So it, it's in a sense, just a version of modern day version of posing practice. If you want to think about it like that, it was big in the old school. Charles Atlas had a whole system dedicated to it. Harry Wong had a book called um, Dynamic Tension, but it's kind of, you see the martial arts, these um, katas and flows. So, this is a practice of just being able to generate movement patterns and positions through different torques. So, the goal is once you learn, okay, you have multiple options of creating a movement, then you can carry that on over to a, let's say, lifting practice and say, okay, there's different ways I can now approach a squat or a deadlift and uh, open up some more uh, optionality, freedom, and dimensions, which for me, that's part of my assessment process is, is there a hole that's exposed when we go into different torques? Because if you think about range of motion, uh, I don't like the idea of, oh, it's just a joint moving here in space. It's like you can move a joint here while flexing different musculature and it will restrict the range of motion depending on which torque you're executing it in. So then it becomes, okay, so let's assess both. Let's see where there's discrepancies. Let's see where we, I guess, compensate, quote unquote because now we're defining uh, limitations. So, yeah, that was the tutorial course, if that made any sense. Yeah. I, <laughs> no, it's, I, well, I've taken it, so it does. But let me ask you a few questions to follow up, because th to me, this is really interesting, and this is something where a lot of worlds collide. So, I, in the last couple of years, have had tremendous success using, uh, so Jay Strader's come up with all these extreme isometric, long isometric holds, just on the simplest version, just doing a, a rear foot elevated squat hold for like two minutes before your squat session, doing a three minute, like stretch down into the lunge hold before you do sprinting, stuff like that. To me, that's, or even just doing a wall sit before you squat, stuff like that has been really powerful for me. 
and and this is coming from a guy who like i don't know i i almost like self described like avoid lactate type person i i I've had podcasts here talking about, you know, like elastic people don't get too much lactate. And, and I, I do it within reason, but doing those holds has been really powerful for me. And in the cheat torque course, and this is where I'd really like to go because if, you know, if anyone was confused with some of the specifics of that, I think this will wrap it up is before you get into like a main lift is it seemed like in the course you do a lot of like, you call like strength through length, like something that's, that's tension, but a lot of range of motion to kind of warm up for that. And then you had with the internal and external, you had like the fire and ice labels, which we could get into. But I, I'm just curious more how you use some of those lengthening tension exercises as warm ups, because I have found I would rather use like a like a, a iso hold, like an iso lunge, preferably versus getting into the nitty gritty. Hey, we're gonna do this oblique sit and open up the back of your pelvis. Not that that can't be helpful, but I just, it's like, how can we make this as simple as possible before we feel the need to do anything else, you know? And so, I'm just curious. I'd love to get more into how you're using some of these tensioning exercises to warm up for the main thing someone's going to be doing on the day. Yeah. So, it's essentially an isotonic practice, which is, you know, isometric, you're squeezing in one position. Isotonic, you're trying to keep that tension throughout the full range of motion. So, some people might say a radiation, but you're priming I guess, I guess priming could be a way of using it, but I see it as just setting the intent for the lift we're going to go into so that you could bias sensation in the musculature that we're trying to, you know, preference when we do it. So ideally though, when I have, you know, I say this in the course, once you feel it, load it up. And once you can load it up, just make that your warm up with the exercise with a barbell. It's it's really just gaining connection to your body. But my goal would be to no longer use that practice and to just get the connection from it and then use it with your regular exercise. Yeah. So as soon as you gain basically it's like there's not like a magic amount of sets and reps. It's like just once I'm doing like a like a front foot elevated deep split squat or something and I feel the tension adequately throughout the chain, then I'm good to go. And I guess too, once you get good at that, maybe you don't need to even do that. Is that what you're saying? Like once you get good enough at feeling the tension, then you could just jump into your squat or deadlift or whatever it is, whatever it is without, I mean, that would be the goal, I guess, right? Like you don't need anything outside of you. Like it's just you and you can just hop into whatever, you know, that's very Jay Schrader too. I think like that you could just on any (laughs) given time do the thing you need to do. Like, or maybe uh, Bud Jeffries, I think has talked about that as well. Mm -hmm. Like, 3 a.m. Yeah, yeah. do i have to you know <laughs> go do something heroic at the, you know at this time with no warm-up i should be able to do it you know so mm-hmm. yeah i think because it's a practice you could practice the rest of your life and go down the complexities but is that what you want to do probably not you want it for a specific purpose so if it is let's say squatting deadlifting like what i do is i do a little like tensioning as i'm getting under the bar or with my feet through the ground before I pull. So I'm using it more as like a targeted brace for my lift. You know, I'm kind of distilling it into that core tension when going into the lift because you can get expressive through the distal limbs and the hands and the fingers and big, but it's really just about like that proximal central intent of going into it, which everyone 
does intuitively, right? Like everyone's done it. Like co- powerlifting coaches have taught break the bar apart for a reason when they're on the bench. But it's good to like play around with that and be able to move through these things and, and channel that tension so that you're just more, you just have a lot more information of your body and space when going into whatever movement your your practice needs. Yeah, that makes sense. For me, I was really into, and I'm curious if you have any thoughts on gait too, like running, jumping, you know, I, if you play like, you know, basketball or anything. I know for me, I was really into, I just call it like loney running. I just had uh, Dan Bach on talking about like, he calls it like high foot, like basically like the ability for the foot to come down high from the back and create a strong collision in front. And for me, maybe loney running offers some different options, but it's almost like it makes me, if you can't rely on the foot coming high or the knee coming higher in the front, you have to create tension in your body and your trunk quickly. Like you have to rotate your trunk really quickly. It's, it's all the tensions coming at you a lot faster. And for me, that's like, the te- a tension primer for running but after doing that for a few years i actually find now i don't i'm not quite as interested in it not because it's not useful but because i feel like i have more of that like i have that feeling more more readily available than i used to not that i wouldn't love going and doing it it's a little cold out right now i have been limiting my tempo running and sprint running outside but i feel like i have taken on the benefits of that a little bit more as i've gone through it and i guess that would be the ultimate goal you know so I'm just curious too if you have any more like any anything that you would relate to maybe gait or anything outside of lifting as well with that if you have anything there. Yeah, I mean stuff like like carrying a sandbag while walking fast mm-hmm. attempting to run race, you know, that's just going to bias how you that that chain when you're running. But I think the end goal for me personally is uh, the the pulsers you, we talked about the pulsers right yeah yeah like when, you, when you're running that whack has and that's to kind of like get that bounce down with the lats and i always took them and like scooted them up in my hands and, and like to feel my pecs when i'm doing them mm. right i'm like oh i want to bias internal torque <laughs> and, and now he kind of has it where we're like oh we could do it two different multiple ways depending on what style you want to run in but yeah that's what i like to bias if you look at world-class like Elite level sprinters, man, the pecs they have, the musculature they have, and that internal yes. torque chain is very defined. So, going back to like chi torque and priming and stuff, I think the end goal is to get the connection, sensation, tension during the exercise. And then the end kind of end of the line, what I'm looking for is the muscle mass is changing the actual structure. Once you have that structure, I think you don't have to think about anything. It's part of you now. You have that felt sensation and connection. If you can do like the titty dance with your pecs, like that's not something you have to think about. And it's easier the more muscle mass, the more meat you have, the more tissue you have available. You could just flex it whenever you want. You know, it's a good transductive like energy, right? So I think when you supply someone with that, man they own it they don't really have to uh it, it's just the prime is just feeling it at that point yeah and th- as a coach to be able to transcend some of these things too i think so often we get attached to all our little drill sets like oh everyone's gonna warm up with xyz da, 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 and never thinking well maybe that athlete they're good like they have that sensation now they don't need to necessarily keep doing this thing or maybe i can find something else that they can work on or 
I, I love what you said too about that anterior delta and pec. I was just talking about that on this podcast maybe six months ago on how important that like bicep anterior delt pec is for a lot of really good sprinters that creates that internal torque across the body and i never thought about doing that actually with the pulser and creating that i'm going to mess around with that next time for sure it seems like too you could even do that if you wanted to even with like a, a dumbbell or be creative a kettlebell just find a way to do an isometric before you sprint and find and feel that tension in the front and then just use it just engage with it and it eventually maybe you'll find yourself with just a little more muscle mass there and you don't even need to think about it you don't need to necessarily do that it makes me think too of i posted on instagram a while ago same bolt warming up and and again i don't know his whole warm-up but for the most part what i saw is he would just basically just warm up with just accelerations he wasn't maybe he did like the a skips and b skips but i think for the most part he just did a skip in and just did a build-up and he did a bunch of those kind of bounced around nothing special but it's like he had it he has everything he needs he doesn't need to sit here and oh my god make sure my this skip is right and that skip is right it's like once you got Wait. it there's a confidence that comes with that too you know you're telling me he didn't do his cars routine and his joint circles before <laughs> you know he might have snuck in some F, some hip cars i don't know but i think this I is before it. that I was popular it. though too maybe i don't know <laughs> It's before humans knew we had to do that to maintain our our joints. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, hey, I, I know we could talk about this. I have like a million other questions for you and you know, maybe we can talk about them some other time. But I'll, um, you know, if, if unless you have uh, anything left to expand on that, I'll close this down for now. So I'll just say if you have anything, any final parting thoughts uh, and then where can people find you, um, you know, courses or anything like that or if people want to learn more about the torque chains and how you see that core of coaching people. Yeah. So I have some courses available, Chi Torque course going over a practice of connecting to the different torques. There's a program there that's showing how I kind of implement it with training, with lifting in a program. And also have a, a torque stick course if you want to get this uh, great tool that's a great party trick, I guess, for your friends. Your your dad, grandpa probably <laughs> remember them. But yeah, that's all available if you go to at uh, Strong Camps on Instagram. There's a link tree there or DanielMurakami.com. It's available there. Awesome. Well, sounds good. Well, hey, thanks for coming on, DJ. Appreciate it, man. Yo, thanks, Joel. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.